Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey folks, this is John Hodgman. On today's episode of Risk, you'll hear Sarah Skilling. It was like the first time I'd seen like a dick up close and it was all right. Uh, That and more. But before that, here's some words from the almost absurdly sexy Kevin Allison. Hey, folks, this is Kevin Allison. Hey, I wanted to ask, have you ever heard this song by Denise LaSalle? It's a terrific song, but I just want to make clear, she's not talking about how to get your postage out. She's talking about tongue and clit. I know a better way to get your postage out, and you don't need to lick shit. Unless, of course, you're into that sort of thing. I mean, of all the paraphilias, that one is unforgettable. My point is, when you're not noshing on the crotch tacos or the ass apples, you could be using stamps.com. You can get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then just hand the mail to the mailman or drop it in the mailbox. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Then you'll have plenty of time to follow Denise's advice. But if instead of finding that little man, you find yourself thinking, damn, I I don't have a a good enough mattress for all this activity I'm planning. Well, I know where you'll find the best mattress at Casper.com. 
where you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash risk and using the promo code risk. These Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly reasonable price. They've got just the right sink, just the right bounce. They use two technologies to get these Casper mattresses just right. Latex foam and memory foam coming together for just the perfect fit. This is a risk-free trial with a return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They're made in America. This is $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. You go to the store, you'd be paying $1,500 for that kind of a mattress. And right now, you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash risk and using the promo code risk. Other than that, just don't forget. Hey, lick it for your sticker. 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 Okay, now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm John Hodgman, and this is the Bad Plus behind me now. Your usual host, Kevin Allison, couldn't be here today. Unfortunately, Kevin was hospitalized after a nearly fatal overdose on butts. But that's not true at all. The real story is this is Max Fun Switcheroo Week. For just one week, all the podcasts of the Maximum Fun Network have switched hosts. So my own show, Judge John Hodgman, has been usurped by the hosts of the One Bad Mother podcast. And Kevin is busy helming the hilarious show, International Waters. So if you can't make it through just one week without hearing Kevin complaining about not being able to find a kinky enough Asian boyfriend or about being sober vegan and hating it, he's probably doing that right over there right now. It just so happens this week also marks this podcast's birthday. This week, Risk is a walloping six years old for 255 episodes Risk with an exclamation point, has been bringing you the uncensored stories too sexy, too scary, or too anything else to be aired on broadcast radio. If you're new to the show, keep in mind that the name of the series itself is a sort of trigger warning, because real life is about to be right up in your ears in a big way. We're calling this episode Shakeups because all three of our storytellers today found themselves completely disoriented by surprise turns in their lives. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story that Cowley Towell told last week when Risk was in Portland, but before that, one from comedian Sarah Skilling in Seattle. Here's Sarah now with the story we call The Mountaineer. Hello. Um, so I was going to try and change the names in this story, but I would mess it up. So if you're here, I'm sorry. Shit happens. Um, 
It was 2003. I was a 22-year-old virgin. Um, it wasn't because I wanted to, like no one asked. And um, <laughs> I was one of those people that always had really severe crushes on my best guy friends, but I never said anything because I was scared I'd be heartbroken. So I had a lot of really good guy friends and a lot of really intense crushes, but um, no sex. I had planned out how I was going to lose my virginity. Like, I had so much time, right? <laughs> I just imagined, like, a really hippie, like, dirty, like, teenager's bedroom. And, like, Touch Me by the Doors was going to play. And since it's only, like, two minutes and 34 seconds long, it was going to go on repeat until we got to it. But that's not what happened. So uh, in 2003, my friend Jennifer called me and asked me to be a bridesmaid in her wedding. And I said yes, because, you know, we were friends. Like, Jennifer's kind of a down-to-earth person. She doesn't talk that much. She kind of not sure she's listening half the time because she doesn't react. But, you know, we had a Ryan Phillippe fan club in junior high. <laughs> and we made shirts and watched his movies. So um, she was cool. Boy crazy. And then so she called me, and she, asked, she just gotten engaged to Brandon, who was another guy we went to school with. And he was, I want to say popular, but when I think about popular, I think about, like, dicks. So he was super nice. Um, and he was also, like, the school mascot. Like, he wore the costume. He was, like, the party starter. I don't know how to describe it. He was just super energetic, nice to everyone. So they were an odd couple. But they decided to get married. And they asked me to be a bridesmaid, and I was like, sure, I'll do it. So we, and we, like, hung out, the three of us, a bunch, you know, we would, like, go to Kangaroo Farm. Go there if you haven't. It's in Arlington. And um, <laughs> so I said yes to being a bridesmaid, so um, that was good. Flash forward to about three months before the wedding. I'm going to WSU over in Pullman. They still live over in Kirkland, where I'm from. And they invite me. They're like, oh, hey, we're having a bridal shower. So, you know, you should come over for it. And I was like, all right, cool. So I, you know, drove over from Pullman. And the plan was to spend the night at their place and um, go to the thing the next day. So I got to their place. Um, we ate dinner, drank a lot, played drunk Jenga. Um, yeah. So got super, super plastered. And um, I, at one point, I think it was like midnight, I was like, you know, we should totally go jump in the pool. Because they had like a, lived in an apartment complex and they had a complex pool. I like jumping in pools. So we run downstairs, jump in the pool with our clothes on, run back upstairs. Neighbors are pissed because we're so loud. Um, and then once we get back into the apartment, we're all just like dripping wet and cold. And Brandon's like, you know what? We should get in the shower because we can like turn on the water and warm up. It's like, okay, that makes sense. I'm drunk. So we get in the shower, and um, we're, we're, the water's on. We're, we're warming up. You know, we're taking turns in front of the faucet. And then uh, Brandon takes off Jennifer's shirt and starts sucking on her nipples. And, like, yeah, I know. It, as shocking as it was for you, it was that shocking for me. Like, I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was drunk, and I was like, this, I mean, I was like watching a porn happen in front of me. I was like, okay, yes, 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 I know what happens. So then, then he's like, you should take off your shirt. I was like, okay. So, and I was totally into it. Like, I just, it was just, I was like, yes, yes, and very improv, yes, and. So that he took off my shirt, and then him and Jennifer each took a tit, and that was pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> 
And I might mention, like, I wasn't just a virgin. Like, I had never done anything with anyone. I'd never been naked in front of a guy. I'd never given a blowjob. I'd never probably French kissed someone for more than, like, five seconds. Like, I did nothing. But I knew all about it. So... (laughs) So I was so ready for this. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so we were all making out in the shower. And then we decided to uh, take it to the bedroom. So we went into their bedroom and uh, we started to have like an actually like a really mature conversation about what was about to happen, you know, because they're like, you know, well, first Jennifer pulled out some porn. I don't know why. She just had it under her bed. She's like, I like girls. I'm like, all right, that's cool. She's like, and then they're like, we've always wanted to have a threesome. We think it'd be fun to do it with you. And I was like, all right, okay, cool. This is, okay, cool. So um, Brandon went to get a condom, and um, man, it was, it was like, I felt like I was climbing Mount Rainier with like no mountaineering experience. <laughs> you know, like just, just going to take it to the top. Um, so, uh, let's see, I went down on him, that was weird, it was like the first time I'd seen, like, a dick up close, and it it was alright, uh, and you know, like, sucking on a dick is as hard as it looks, like, it's a lot of work, a lot of breathing, a lot of posturing, and then, um, then Jennifer went down on me, which was awesome, I mean... Who doesn't want someone doing that to them? Um, it feels great. And so, but and then during it, Brandon was like, "That's Jennifer. That's Jennifer. You're feeling," which is kind of weird, but um, whatever. <laughs> so then I went down on Jennifer, and that was another thing. I was like, "Okay, this is awesome because like I'm gonna figure out what all the guys like complain about or whatever." And it was fucking awesome. So it was like wet, slimy, you know, like we all of us tasted like chlorine because it was we just got out of the pool. So it was. <laughs> I felt like it was a clean experience. Um, (laughs) And so then it was time for penis and vagina. And so I got on my back, and as Brandon got on top of me, I just started laughing uncontrollably. (laughs) I could not, again, believe the shit was happening to me right now. So, yeah, uh, sex kind of felt like a tampon, to be honest, (laughs) which is what I guess I thought it would be like. But then it was a little bit more pleasurable, you know, it got better. And so we were having a good time, like, Brandon was on top of me, and Jennifer, you know, was, like, over there watching or something. It's going good. And then Jennifer screams, no, Brandon, finish on me. (laughs) And that was kind of a party killer, you know? Because then I kind of just started, like, coming to a realization of, like, what the fuck I was doing right now. You know, like, I'm going to be a bridesmaid in these people's wedding in, like, three months. (laughs) So I was like, you know what, um... I'm just going to go, I'm going to go sleep on the couch. And they're like, no, you should stay in here. I'm like, no, it feels like you need some time alone. I'm just going to go sit on the couch. So I left the room and um, kind of just processed my life the rest of the night as a woman now. And then, and then the worry started, even though we did use protection, I was like, oh my God, what if I'm pregnant? Oh my God. I'm going to be the pregnant bridesmaid at the wedding, and they're going to be like, who's the dad? Because I obviously don't have a boyfriend, and I'm going to be like, it's the groom. Like, that's just so Moripovich. So <laughs> I finally went to sleep. Next day, woke up, and they were like, are you all right? Because you kind of left a little abruptly last night. I was like, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's cool. And they're like, well, you know, I feel like you should know. Like, we think that we should probably keep this between the three of us. And I was like, well, of course. 
Except for now, yeah. And, um, and if you ever want to talk about it, you know, we can talk about it together. I'm like, what? I'm not going to talk to you about this. Like, I'm like, you remember when we had sex, you guys? Like, I just want to talk about it. But... So I was like, all right, cool. So I kind of just drove around all day aimlessly, wasting time before the uh, bridal shower. And then when I got to the bridal shower, it was like the weirdest thing because I'm surrounded by our entire family now, right? And they're like, oh, you and Brandon are so cute and just so normal and stuff. And I'm like, I fucked your daughter last night. I didn't do that, but I didn't say that, but I thought it. So I made my way through that. Got back to school. Um, I know it's jumping ahead, but it was fine. We left on a good note. I got back to school, and I have anxiety. So I was still concerned I was pregnant, because like that would happen to me. And so I got so anxious that I started to get sick, and I convinced myself it was morning sickness. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm pregnant. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. What am I going to do? And then I go to the bathroom. And... Um, it's, you know, it's a dorm bathroom, sort of several stalls, everything's wet. I sit in the stall, and I'm just kind of contemplating my life. And I don't know if you know this, sometimes toilet paper gets stuck in vaginas. It happens. Um, so I'm sitting there, and, like, I wipe myself, and then I look down, and there's, like, this kind of discolored mound of material in my hand. And in that moment, I convinced myself that that was a miscarriage. <laughs> And that this was my baby. My, my baby with my friend's husband, fiance. And I just started to, you know, be like, what, what the hell? And, then, and this was like four days after it happened, so there's just like no possible way. And then I was like tearing it up, being like, what the hell? But uh, yeah, so... I feel like my logical and emotional mind completely separated at that moment. But the good news is, I wasn't pregnant. Um, Yes. Yes. Um, The wedding was fine. And I uh, have since found several other peaks to climb. So thank you. Good night. Uh, that reminded me, you know, I've only done uh, three ways a couple of times. I tend to be the kind of person who can just only focus on one person at a time. So I'll be at orgies or whatever and and just go off into a corner with one person. Um, But I did once have this amazing, amazing experience. I went home from a bar in the East Village when I was in my early 20s with this beautiful black guy who invited me to the home of this beautiful Italian guy. And I remember, we'll call the Italian guy Salvatore. That's the problem with with three ways is... There's oftentimes one person in the mix who's a lot more interested in one of the three 
people than the other. I, you have to get the balance just right. And I was way into this Salvatore guy, but I was also incredibly impressed that he had, because it was, you know, so there were only CDs at that time. You know, vinyl had kind of gone out of uh, fashion. And he had a CD of everything Miles Davis had ever produced. And I found that so impressive. Just like dozens and dozens and dozens of Miles Davis CDs. Well, a couple years ago, I ran into this guy at a bar, and he turned out to be a friend of a current friend of mine, and the three of us are standing there, and I said, you know, Salvatore, I think you and I were once in a three-way together. <laughs> and he was like, what? No, I don't think so. And I was like, no, 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 I think I'm pretty sure of it. He's like, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> And I said, hold on a second. Did you used to own every CD that Miles Davis ever produced? And he went ashen-faced. And he just mumbled, yeah, and walked away. And my other friend was standing there, and I said, wow. I think your friend was really disgusted to think he might have ever been in a three-way with me. And he said... Oh, was that your interpretation of that? No, no, no. He's way into free jazz now. I think he's just way over miles. six years old I found myself in a set of terrifying circumstances where my um, two-year-old brother Cameron's life was literally in my hands we lived in a rural town in western Idaho called Weezer and Weezer was a town that supported crop farming and livestock ranching The locals referred to the area that surrounded Weezer as the flats. And the flats stretched for miles in directions all around Weezer. My mother's father, Red, lived out on the flats in a single wide trailer. And they often used Red as a babysitter for us kids. I remember Red as being larger than life. He had a full head of red hair. He was tall. He was strong. He was loud. And he was no one that you would ever want to make angry. Even my mother, who anyone would tell you is someone who is and was, no one to be trifled with, didn't want to upset Red. As an example, when I was a child, once I was playing in the yard, and I stepped on a cigarette butt that Red had flicked into the yard. I was barefoot, and it stuck to my skin and burned a hole in it. My mother rushed over to me as I sat crying in the grass. She picked me up, and she took me over to the porch, and I thought it was to examine my wound. 
But instead, she put her face very close to mine and she said in a hushed but stern tone, you need to stop crying right now. You are upsetting your grandfather. And even though I was a young child, that message was actually pretty clear. So on this particular day, my mother and father needed to go shopping out of town, and they took with them my infant brother, but they left myself and my not-quite-three-year-old brother Cameron with our grandfather Red at his house. The routine was pretty steady when Red took care of us. We played outside unsupervised until it got dark or we got hungry. And if you were a kid with an imagination, it was okay because the area surrounding Red's house was actually pretty rich. We had the Snake River, we had the surrounding crops, the railroad tracks, and the slough at our disposal. And on the summers where the crops were corn, we could actually disappear into our own world. I like to role play. And every time that we role played, for me, it was the same scenario. We were children, there were no adults. And we could and did live off the land, just like Daniel Boone or Laura Ingalls would. My brother Cameron and I loved this game, and we would play it until it was time to go inside. On this night, we went inside um, just before dark to find food. And when we would go inside, we knew if Red was in a good mood, he would make us either box mac and cheese or top ramen, and we would get our own Coke in a glass bottle. But on this night when we opened the door, we found Red sitting at the kitchen table. He was chain smoking, he was drinking, and he was reading a novel. And as I opened the door, I could feel that the trailer was full of his anger. I knew what to do. This wasn't new. I needed to keep us out of his sight. So I put Cameron on the couch, I turned on the TV, and I made us top ramen as quietly as possible. Cameron and I spent that evening watching Wonder Woman, eating Top Ramen, and drinking our Cokes in glass bottles, which we, of course, pretended were beers. Throughout the evening, Red got increasingly angry. Each time he got up to go and get another drink from the kitchen, he would curse and swear. And he was actually known for cursing and swearing in this rhythmic fashion. He carried a dish towel in his back pocket, and he would use this dish towel to beat the kitchen counters and the cupboards as he ranted and moved from the kitchen table to the kitchen to get his drink and back again. What I wanted was to turn up the TV so I couldn't hear this anymore. But that meant stepping into his view. And so I didn't. When my parents returned to town, they had a sleeping infant and perishables in the car, so they went home first. And then they called Red to say that one of them would be on their way to come and pick us up. At that point, he insisted on driving us home himself. And they agreed to it. Cameron was sleeping on the couch in a diaper and a t-shirt. And to me, Red seemed too sleepy to drive. His head kept drooping, and when he walked, he would trip. And so I felt really uneasy. Because of this, I carried Cameron to the car myself. I laid him sleeping in the back seat, and then I got in the front seat. I had a plan in mind. And what I was going to do was talk to Red while he drived so that he wouldn't fall asleep. But as we drove, I just couldn't think of anything to say. 
And on this particular day, I was wearing one of my favorite outfits. It was a black dress with yellow flowers all over it. I had a white button-up sweater and these brown knee-high boots. And instead of talking to Red, I played connect the dots with the flowers on my dress in my lap. As we drove, Red's head started to bob. And then he started to lean towards the right, which is where I was sitting in the front seat. And then he would jerk back up, and the car would swerve when he did it each time. And then one time as he leaned over, it actually felt like he was just going to lay his head in my lap and fall asleep. And then he jerked himself back up and the car kind of swerved all over the road. And I thought, I've got to figure out something to say to keep him awake. And so the last time that his head drooped over, in a desperate attempt to say something, I blurted out, today we learned a new song in school. And while his head was leaning over to the right, he actually looked directly in my face, so we were a couple inches apart as he drove down the highway in the dark. His breath smelled like beer and an ashtray. And he said, what? And then I was upside down, stuck inside of a box, and the box was dark and there were sharp things inside of the box that poked me every time I moved and the only sound in the world was Cameron screaming I couldn't figure out what was happening my mind was fuzzy and it was hard to breathe I thought my eyes were open, but I couldn't see anything, and so I decided maybe I wasn't awake and it was okay to go back to sleep. And so I did. And then Cameron was screaming again. I became aware that my chin was stuck to my chest, and maybe that was why it was hard to breathe. And my body wasn't following basic instructions like get up and move. And panic set in. I ignored the pain that came from the sharp things poking me every time I moved. And I began to shift and turn and crawl. And eventually I was able to look up. And when I did, stars. I could see stars. And so I crawled towards the stars through this maze that I was stuck in until I was on top and I was outside and it was dark. And then I remembered it was dark when we left. It was dark when Red was driving us home. Red must have wrecked the car. But there was no sign of Red. And I was looking around, and still Cameron was screaming. And I realized Cameron needed my help. And so I dropped back into this maze. And I was standing inside of the maze, and I was calling out to Cameron, but he wasn't answering me. He continued to scream, and his screams were kind of mixed with this crying and this moaning. And I could only see as far as I could reach. And so I moved through this maze that was actually the wreckage of Red's car until I got to the back end of the wagon. And there I found Cameron, and he was lying on his side. And he was curled up in a ball, and he was screaming, and he was covered in this black liquid. And I touched him, and I told him I was there. And I told him it was gonna be okay, and I picked him up. And he didn't answer me, and he didn't talk to me, but he did stop screaming. And so with Cameron heavy in my arms, I stepped through what had been the back window of Red's car into the dark night. 
everything was confusing and everything felt really hard. I was standing in the gravel on the side of the road and just moving from the gravel to the side of the road felt like this special challenge. But I got up onto the road and I held Cameron and still no sign of red. And Cameron was so little and he was so injured and I was so scared that he was going to die. Out on the flats in the dark like that, there were no landmarks for me to figure out where I was. It was 1981. There were no cell phones. There was no OnStar. And there were no streetlights. And I was alone. And I stood there holding Cameron for what felt like a very long time. And I knew the railroad tracks were in front of me. And I knew if I kept the railroad tracks to my left, I could walk into town and I could find someone to help us. And I knew my left from my right because my left ring finger had warts on it. And so I decided to walk to town. And I began to walk. And Cameron was at the same time so heavy and so little and so still. And I repeated to myself in my head as I walked, don't die, don't die, please don't die. I knew the black liquid was blood and it made me feel like I needed to puke. But there was nowhere soft and safe to lay Cameron down and there was no way for me to rest and I didn't know how I was gonna make it to town. But I thought I would just walk until I did. Even though there were no signs of any cars, I decided to walk in the middle of the road so no one could drive past us. I knew between me and town, there was a farm that had a couple of mean German shepherds, and I started to worry about them. They were known for running into the highway and chasing cars. I prayed they were locked up at night, and I thought if they were locked up at night, I could go to that farmhouse and I could ask for help. But if they were out, I needed a plan. I needed a way to get past them without getting attacked. And so I made this plan in my mind that I would put the railroad tracks between myself and these dogs and maybe they wouldn't want to cross the railroad tracks because they were afraid of trains and they wouldn't attack us. And it was about that time that way in the distance I could see car lights. And I thought, please, please don't turn off. Please keep coming. And it was about then that I heard Red from behind me calling my name. And I went from feeling this sense of hope to this sense of dread that now I had to deal with Red. I turned around and I saw him. He was walking towards us down the road. He had this funny slant about him. He was sort of leaning forwards. He was sort of leaning to the side. And he was calling to me to come back to him. And I turned from him back to the headlights. Cameron needed help. Cameron was dying. I was going towards the headlights. And I continued to walk in the road towards the headlights. And I could hear right behind me, God damn it, Callie. Get back here now. Get off the road. And I looked back again. I couldn't have thought at the time, but now looking back, he kind of looked like a walker from The Walking Dead. And I thought, maybe he won't catch me, 
and I need to get help, and I continued to walk towards the headlights. As the headlights came towards us, I thought to myself, the lights will catch me before the car hits me so they can stop, and if they are going to turn off, maybe they'll see me in the distance and they'll keep coming. So I ignored Red, carrying Cameron, who was silent, towards these headlights. Just before the car got to me, which didn't turn off, Red caught up. And he yanked Cameron from my arms. He nearly fell over as he did. I started begging him, please give him back. Please give him back to me. But Red wouldn't listen, and he wouldn't give him back to me. I felt like Cameron was so little, and he was so frail, that if Red dropped him, he would die instantly when he hit the pavement. As the car pulled up, the driver's side window rolled down, and it was this little old lady who was by herself. When she saw what was happening, she exclaimed that we needed to go to the hospital now. Red was leaning in, he was holding Cameron, and, and, and they began to argue because Red said he wanted a ride home to his house, not to the hospital. I stood behind Red, and I was so terrified that my chest hurt. I didn't know what to do, and the adults were arguing. I was listening to the way that Red was talking to the lady, and I was familiar. I'd seen him do it many times before. The swearing and the tone, he always got his way when he spoke this way towards people. I didn't know what to do. As Red argued with the lady, telling her that we needed to go home to his house and not to the hospital, he was holding Cameron sort of like a baby. Cameron's neck was resting in the crook of Red's left elbow. He was trying to hold him, but his right arm had kind of almost gone straight, and so Cameron's body was dropping well below Red's waist. What I didn't know at the time, and I know now, Red actually had a fractured cervical spine from this accident. Though it was mildly displaced, he had a broken neck when all of this was going on, and it accounted for his severe right-sided weakness and that slant that I was witnessing. He was telling the lady that if she wasn't going to take us home, she needed to just drive the hell on down the road. I couldn't let her drive away, and I could see that she was scared. But as they argued, I moved up beside Red, and I was able to get Cameron's legs, and then I got a lot of his body. And as Red turned to me to tell me to stop, I was able to get the rest of Cameron, and I kind of stumbled backwards, and I was able to actually open the backseat driver's side door and sort of fall into the car. And once I had Cameron and myself in the car, I locked the door. Inside the car, I noticed her interior was red. And I thought, this is good. At least Cameron's blood is not gonna ruin her car. Red was standing outside the car and he yelled at me, God damn it, get out of the car, Callie. I couldn't look at him. And so I looked straight ahead. It was probably the nicest car I've ever been inside of. And I started focusing on the details inside of the car. Her front seats had these fluffy seat covers. It smelled like flowers. It was even decorated inside. And I was not going to get out. Cameron's skin was white. He was silent. And he was covered in blood. The lady said to Red, Please get inside. We, we don't want to leave you here but I'm taking the children. And so Red decided he would get inside and he would come into town with us. But I wasn't going to unlock my door. I didn't trust him. 
And I didn't believe he wouldn't just pull us out of the car. I made him walk around the car and get in on the other side. Once he was in the car, though, Rudd began to browbeat this woman again. She was afraid of him. He told her to take us to his house, like he said. Finally, she said, I'll take you to your house. But when I get home, I'm calling the authorities. And Rudd said, I don't give a good goddamn what you do after you drop us off at my house. As we began to drive towards Red's home, Red looked at me and said, I can't see you tell her how to get there. And I don't know why, but I decided to let her drive past his house. And then I let her do it three more times. I had this knowing that Cameron would die if we went back to Red's house that night. And Red said to me, we have to get to my house. I need to bathe your brother before your mother sees him. Somewhere in these driving back and forth up the flats, the lady got the courage to say, I'm driving into town. I'm taking you to the hospital. And as we drove towards town, Red said, don't take us to the hospital, take us to their house. We actually lived on the edge of town where you would have to drive past our house anyways. And as we got close to our house, I could see that my parents' car was in the driveway, and I started screaming, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Take us to my mom and dad. They're home. And as she pulled into the driveway, before the car even stopped, I jumped out, and I was running to the house, and I was screaming for my mom and dad. When they realized what had happened, panic ensued. When they saw my brother, it shot to a whole new level. Everyone jumped in the car to drive to the hospital, and we left Red, still refusing care, in our driveway. I understand now he didn't want his level of intoxication documented in association with what happened that night. When we got to the hospital, everyone swarmed around my brother and took him away. My mom wanted to be with him, but they told her that she had to wait, and so my parents sat in silence. The waiting room was so big, and it was so bright, and I didn't know what to do with myself, and so I found a chair in the corner, and I hid behind it. A nurse found me there, and she took me to see a doctor, and she got me a juice, and she told me that my brother was going to be okay. And there were many stories that were born from that night. We talked about how Red hit loose gravel, how the car blew a tire, and despite his best efforts, it flipped anyways. We talked about how Red stuck his arm out to save me from going through the windshield, which caused him to go through instead, and those were the results of his severe injuries. We talked about what a miracle it was that Red was able to carry Cameron down the road and flag down a car to get help, even though he had a broken neck. Nobody was able to tell the truth that I just told you guys tonight. Thank you.
This is Risk. I'm your special guest host, John Hodgman from the Judge John Hodgman podcast, here for Maximum Fun Switcheroo Week. And this is Amy Mann behind me now. Hi, Amy. I've received word that Kevin Allison has wrapped up guest hosting the latest episode of International Waters, but he still couldn't make it here to join me for this mid-episode hosting segment because he sprained his neck under a rim chair at the Dads and Lads Wet and Wild Pea Party in Chinatown. Oh, how many times have I said that sentence? Now, we just heard from Callie Tal at the recent Risk Live show in Portland. Callie was a first-time storyteller, just like Monica Welty in last week's episode. They both blew us away. You might have noticed that Risk's illustrious episode editor Jeff Barr did a little experiment there and added sound design to Callie's story. Even on this podcast's sixth birthday, Risk is still going out on a limb and trying new things. It's how we keep our brains alive. Our final story today comes from the last Risk Live show in New York City. Bowen Yang is a delightfully talented comedian, the host of Drag Court at the People's Improv Theater, and the co-creator of one of the most important hashtags in history. So be sure to look up hashtag bear people. I know I will. Here he is now. It's Bowen Yang with a story we call La Cage aux Denis. Hi. Hi. Um, so the most meaningful, one of the most meaningful interactions I've had with my mother was when she read aloud to me a transcript of a gay cybersex chat window I left open. Um, and coincidence, that was also the way I came out to her. Uh, so I was 17. Uh, I was coming home from school. Uh, my left hand, I had my violin case. In my right hand, I had a script for our school's production of Anything Goes. Um, and as soon as I set foot in the door, I could feel the air hanging thick. I could immediately tell something was wrong. And I walked upstairs to find my mother slumped into the curvature of her office chair. She'd been crying for hours, it looked like. And in her hands, she held the printed chat log. As soon as she saw me, she launched into this like recitation of this locker room role-play fantasy that uh, I was engaging in with this 19-year-old stranger from Texas, as far as I knew. Um, and she read it line by line. She shook the entire time. She mumbled through the words she didn't understand. She stuttered through her accent, and she stopped every few lines to sob. And um, just as she was reading this thing that was, uh, you know, making her worst nightmare come true, uh, which was that her only son was a homosexual. And so I don't remember if I begged her to stop because, of course, it was mortifying. I don't remember if I begged her to stop or uh, if I just stood there speechless. But what I do remember was hating myself for making her feel this sad. And I remember feeling the blood flush out of my face, my eyes widening, and uh, my face going limp just totally paralyzed. And so that's the closest thing I have to a coming out story because uh, unlike most respectable 21st century gays, I did not muster up the courage to approach my parents with the intent to tell them I was gay. And so instead I'm left with uh, like being caught in the act and uh, having it be like a really good episode of To Catch a Predator. Um, <laughs> where like I'm the predator and my mom is like a hysterically weeping Chris Hansen. Um, <laughs> Just like reading the transcript. So anyway, um, my parents 
who are Chinese immigrants uh, weren't religious per se, but they did believe in a higher power that happened to hate gay people. <laughs> um, and they took issue with homosexuality more on like a base level family values place, and it was about keeping up the family line. I was the only, the only son. And so uh, the immediate aftermath that followed um, the cyber sex outing scandal in our house was uh, the three of us, my father, my mother, and I, having these really overwrought, long conversations in the living room, and then they were all punctuated by these quiet, sad meals uh, where we all just cried into our authentic Chinese dishes. Um, And guys, tofu dishes are seasoned great with teardrops, let me tell you. And so after one such meal on one such day, my dad calls me down to his computer to show me a website for an ex-gay therapy clinic. Um, Yeah, well, it was in Colorado Springs, which was two hours from where we lived in Denver. And the name of this clinic was called the Center for Men and Boys, which, like, the name alone is, like, the biggest dick-shaped carrot to dangle in front of self-loathing gay men, right? So the Center for Men and Boys was run by this man named Scott Sutherland. Now I'm using his quote-unquote real name because, sidebar, a lot of ex-gay therapists take up aliases because they hop around from town to town uh, to escape, like, activists and uh, to avoid hate mail and Googling and all that stuff. It's real. It's real. It's like a survival tactic for them. So this guy, Scott, ran... Um, this clinic and his previous credentials included residency at the Agape Psychological Clinic. Yeah, Agape, as in how you would describe a power bottom's anus. <laughs> Another dick shaped carrot or an anus shaped carrot. Um, so. So this website uh, promised to cure a quote-unquote unwanted same-sex attraction, and it specialized in emotionally disturbed boys. And so I read this and uh, just had this sick feeling in my stomach, and that's when my dad turned to me, took off his glasses, said, I've already booked several appointments for you. I will be driving you down to this clinic every week. And so... um, I didn't really have much of a say in the matter because... Uh, one, I was emotionally drained, and two, um, I was still feeling the shame, and that's the kind of shame that like makes you overeat or uh, apply to grad school. Um, it's like, it's like ultimately, you know, it's not good for you, but you do it anyway. Uh, and it was the same kind of shame that days before with my mother uh, uh, made me feel the blood flush from my face, my eyes widen, my face going limp, uh, just totally paralyzed. So. A week later, my dad and I make our first trip down to Colorado Springs to see Scott, and the drive down is painfully quiet, just like our meals. And then once we finally get to Colorado Springs, uh, we meet Scott, and expectations of him I didn't even know I had were completely shattered. He was this tall, bald, like boringly dressed man, and going in, I expected some uh, like repressed Kinsey Five. Um, <laughs> Just a closet case uh, who was just like peddling this false hope. And he uh, was just this devastatingly straight man, it seemed, who led me into his office that was decorated with devastatingly straight furnishings. Um, 
It's just a small room, about the size of like, like half the size of this stage. Uh, the walls were painted like green, gray. Everything was in neutral tones. The furniture was tacky. Um, and on the walls were his like diplomas. They might have been fake. And uh, like a couple of shitty Bob Ross paintings. And so he sat me down and uh, started our first session by asking me if I wanted this experience to be secular or Christ-centered because he specialized in both. And I told him, um, secular, because I'm not religious. And then in the back of my mind, I thought, but wait, if he does both, and that just means the secular experience is a secretly Christ-centered one. <laughs> anyway, and that's, uh, that's when I noticed on his desk this framed picture of him and what looked like his wife and two kids who were about my age. All of a sudden, this like unevolved lizard brain part of me wanted that for myself. I thought, oh yeah, like I want that. I want to be in my own version of that picture someday with a happy family and maybe that never intersects with a gay lifestyle. And so all of a sudden that picture became sort of aspirational to me and I thought, you know, I can get through this weird crazy therapy if I can get my life looking anything like that photo. And so then this weird thing started happening where I actually enjoyed the therapy with Scott. And the reason being was because those first two sessions, we didn't really talk about anything gay related. It was just like pretty solid therapy, um, actually, where I made like a few breakthroughs um, with like my self-confidence and the way I verbalized my emotions or the way I was mindful of myself. And um, Scott would like regularly ask me things like, or tell me things <laughs> that were, uh, for example, uh, yeah, you're, you're just so much smarter than you realize or so much more capable than you realize or just get out of your own way, and um, I agree, you should have been cast as the lead in Anything Goes. Um, and and I would, I would enjoy these, yeah, well, you know what, in that show I was typecast as one of the Asian stowaways. It was horrible. So, these therapy sessions started out pretty, pretty good. I mean, I would leave them feeling better than I did going in, and then another weird, pleasant surprise that came out of this was that the drives to and from the center back home were also very nice as well with my father. We found ways to fill the silence. We had like idle banter going on between us. We cracked jokes. And um, weirdly, it felt new to both of us because we had never had that kind of candor before. And so uh, we would make pit stops at diners or get snacks at gas stations and just talk. And we were just like two guys on a road trip uh, every week. And so... And this sounds so cheesy, but like, uh, it was like for the first time, uh, it felt like my dad and I were finally friends. And in some weird way, I had Scott to thank for that. And then things took a dark turn when it was about our fifth or sixth session. Scott and I were in the middle of some exchange, and I had like mumbled through a sentence. And Scott asked me to repeat back what I said. I did. And then I followed it up with, um, oh, but I'm, I'm so sorry I mumbled. Like, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Like in that frenetic, uh, but like soft spoken way which is still my bread and butter. Uh, but anyway, I... <laughs> so I apologized. I said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he snapped. Why are you saying you're sorry? Why are you apologizing? And I froze because he had never talked to me in that tone before. And there was just this pregnant pause. And then he finally kept going. He said, apologizing too much is a sign of weakness. Don't apologize for things when you haven't done anything wrong. Apologizing is not attractive which is a weird thing to say to your therapy patient. Um, but looking back, it made sense because if ex-gay therapy is in principle reverse engineering like your outward expression as a gay man, then like attractiveness, I guess, to him was like his way of molding me into like this hetero ideal. 
but it was just a very bizarre moment and all of a sudden therapy started to feel a little disturbing. I left the sessions feeling worse than when I went in and then I just thought that, you know, maybe maybe this wasn't worthwhile, maybe there was a better way to sort of make sense of all my feelings and also he was making me feel bad about something that I shouldn't have felt bad about in the first place so that was weird and that's when Scott started to finally pathologize my sexuality it was the next week when he asked me to talk him through a recent time that I had been attracted to a man and all of a sudden I felt the room get a little smaller I noticed for the first time it was this windowless four-walled horribly shittily decorated room And I obliged, even though I was uncomfortable, and I said, okay, well, yeah, one time, a couple weeks ago, I was out uh, at lunch, um, and then I saw this guy who sat down at a table next to me, and he looked kind of cute, and I thought he looked nice. And Scott says, okay, well, how did you feel? And I thought, I I felt fine. And he goes, no, 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 how did you physically, physically feel? How did that attraction manifest in your physicality? And I didn't really know how to respond to that. Um, I said, well, I guess, you know, I was tired or something, and, and, and he asked me what my posture was. I said, I might have slouched a little bit, and then he snaps and goes, there it is. That's what I was looking for. And then he leans back in his chair and then goes off into this explanation where he says, same-sex attractions come from when we feel a lot of inner turmoil or when we're not feeling good about ourselves or it's at the mercy of these negative circumstances that are happening outside. And uh, I just want you to think about that, Bowen, the next time you feel attracted to a man. And at the time, I didn't have the knowledge to like totally debunk that logic, because it makes no sense. Um, but I knew that something he said was wrong, and I walked out of that session, again, feeling very disturbed, tapped my dad on the shoulder, we drove home, I didn't say a word to him. The next week was our last session because I was moving away to college within the month and I wouldn't be back in Colorado regularly. So there was this, you know, marked end to our time together. And then once I got to the therapy room, I could tell Scott wanted to end on some strong, impactful note. And so he sits me down and he says, Bowen, I hope you've given a lot of thought to what I told you last week about where same-sex attractions come from and how you feel bad about yourself and that's why you're attracted to men. So I have this perfect story that's going to illustrate this for you that happened to a former patient of mine. And I go, okay. I listened and he started telling the story. Uh, He said, Bowen, this patient of mine was driving around the highways of California and uh, it was late at night and he was trying to get home to his wife and kids and all of a sudden he got lost and He drove off and ended up in San Bernardino, which, let me tell you, isn't somewhere you want to end up in. (laughs) And that's when I started to, you know, look for a Denny's. And I ended up parking in a Denny's, got out of the car, sat down to grab a cup of coffee just to get me through the night. And then that's when I saw the waiter, who I thought was pretty cute. And then after I got the check, I left my number on a napkin, hoping that he would call me, and he did. And I met up with him later. But Bowen, I want to tell you that it's a shame that my patient... And then he stops, because if you didn't notice, he slipped very seamlessly into the first person, and it was very clearly obvious that that was a story about him and not some former patient. He made it sound like this happened pretty recently, and it made it all the more mortifying when he caught himself slipping, so that I saw his face, and I saw that the blood flushed from his cheeks, his eyes widened, 
his face went limp, just totally paralyzed. And I saw the same shame that I felt when my mom caught me in that cybersex chat. And it was the same shame that led me to Scott in the first place that made me think that I was so desperate enough that there was a hope for a different life. And in that moment, I thought that um, you know, being gay isn't something you can change. And even if you want it to change, you can't change it. And the fact that I was sitting in that room with him meant that I wanted to change it, and I couldn't change it. And so Scott was really mortified. It was the last time I ever spoke to him or saw him. It was a very awkward goodbye. And whether or not he was tacitly admitting to having sex with Denny's waiters on the side um, <laughs> remains to be known for sure. Who knows how often he does that. Um, but I went home that day and just knew in my own heart that uh, that shame wasn't strong enough to sort of change this thing about me and that it wasn't even worth having in the first place. So I shed that pretty quickly after that last session. And um, obviously, the therapy didn't work. Um, I'm here, I, am, I have zero shame about being gay. Oh my God, you guys, it's the best. It's, <laughs> give it up for gayness. Um, it's just made my life so much better. And my parents to this day still don't really approve, but um, if there's one thing I wouldn't trade in that experience of ex-gay therapy would be <laughs> the drives with my dad because, again, we were friends for the first time. We had bonded meaningfully. And since going through ex-gay therapy, uh, my family and I, we've said I love you to each other more than we ever used to. Um, and we mean it, all of us. And um, I'd like to think that me trying ex-gay therapy was my way of making an effort to understand my parents. I'd like to think that someday my parents will make an effort to try to understand me. And I'd like to think that somewhere Scott is having sex with a Denny's waiter. And that he doesn't have to feel ashamed of it. Thank you. that is all, as they say, for this week's episode, folks. That was Bowen Yang we just heard, and you're hearing Ben Ptolemy behind me now. Next week, Kevin Allison will be back to share all new recordings of his burps and orgasms, I suppose. Meanwhile, this is your guest host, Judge John Hodgman, signing off. Please don't forget to check the tour page at riskshow.com. That's R-I-S-K hyphen S-H-O-W dot com, com, spelled in the traditional manner to get tickets to the upcoming Risk Live shows happening in Toronto, Denver, Atlanta, Milwaukee. Am I done? No. Cleveland. Salt Lake City. Now I'm done. 
If you're interested in learning how to tell stories, you can find Risk's sister site at thestorystudio.org. Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts. And now our switcheroo is done. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. But let me say that if I decide that I want to do a retake on something, I'm going to go boop,